Last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. Minor prophet number 12. Talking to God's people maybe some 75 years after the rebuilding of the temple under Zerubbabel, God is speaking through his servant to exhort them to continue in what they know to be right. They have slowed down the pace of their worship, their enthusiasm maybe getting a little bit wane, their desire to worship the Lord a little bit stale. And this last book of the Old Testament is a desire from the Lord to get his people back on track. The name Malachi literally means messenger, God's messenger. Again, he's probably written this book from the Lord after or maybe just at the end of Nehemiah's governorship in Judah. And the book is basically of three parts, reminding them of God's covenant, rebuking them for their unfaithfulness, and a, both a warning and a future blessing of the Lord's coming again. Let's look at the notes on the back of your sheet first, and then we'll get into looking at the verses in the book of Malachi tonight. This last of the Minor Prophets and the last book of the Old Testament is a call back to faithfulness to God's people. In the first two chapters, the Lord asks a series of questions to Israel, the priests, and to Judah, pointing out how much they have strayed and what he desires from them. Comparing Israel to Edom, the Lord declares that he loved Jacob but hated Esau. He will bring down the pride of Edom, magnifying himself in the eyes of Israel. The priests offer contemptible sacrifices and weary in their service to him. He will cleanse them back to the high standards of his covenant with the Levites. Judah and Jerusalem have profaned the holiness of the Lord through their idolatry, but God will judge them. In chapter 3, the Lord warns that his coming Messiah will suddenly come to the temple to purify the priests and to judge his people. Wicked practice will be dealt with, the tithe and righteousness restored. The Lord remembers those who fear him and think upon his name. In the final chapter, he warns of judgment and a curse in the coming day of the Lord if his people fail to repent. The wicked will be burned and trod down but those that fear his name will be blessed and prosper. John the Baptist would come first in the spirit of Elijah the prophet before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Let's go back to the beginning of the book, chapter one, and we'll look at these series of questions that the Lord presents to God's people through the prophet Malachi. First, 
we'll look at the intro, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I love Jacob. And I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, They shall build, but I will throw down. They shall call, they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, The Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. God does not want his people to forget his love to them. And this is something that can happen pretty easily when you start taking your eyes off of him. This reference to the brothers, Jacob and Esau, where God says he loved Jacob but hated Esau, is pertaining to the fact that God can choose who he does things through. It's his prerogative. He had a choice of two brothers from the line of Isaac and from the line of Abraham. And he, he picked Jacob for the covenant relationship that would continue to flow through going off into the future of even our time. Esau, he chose not to give the covenant promise to. He did bless Esau initially. Esau, of course, turned his heart away from the Lord, became a thorn in the flesh, as it were, for God's people, uh, eventually getting to the point where they joined along with the enemies of Israel in hurting Israel and their, their people. So that's why things got elevated against Esau to a point where God was actually against them. But again, don't forget, God wants us to love him because he loves us so much. Go down to verses six through eight. We'll look at the next section. Someone want to read that for us? Chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. The Lord expects our best to him, uh, both as believers or as officers or deacons, pastors, missionaries. He desires, he expects our best to be presented to him. Second best does not do. If you've got the best sitting in your house and you instead give the Lord something much less, maybe even something defective or broken, he's not gonna be pleased with that. God is so much greater, so much higher, so much more of everything that is good than us. How can we but give our best to him? Anything less would be a a shame upon the Lord's name. And not only is he talking about his people here, he's talking about his, his servants, the priests, 
who knew what they should do. They should have been God's teachers to teach his people what they should do, yet they were doing poorly in the eyes of the Lord, and he rebukes them for that. Get on, get on, on track with what they should do. Uh, remember what you're there for and do it, is what Lord, the Lord is asking of them. If we go down to chapter 2, verses 7 to 9, we see a continuation of this message against the priests and against a worship of the Lord which is not good. As we see where the basis for what was good came from, chapter 2, verses 7 to 9, says, For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But ye are departed out of the way. Ye have caused many to stumble at the law. Ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as ye have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. The Levitical tribe, the Levites, they showed a zeal in the beginning for the Lord when those around them were not doing what they should do. And God blessed the Levites with a covenant that they would be God's people, that he would have them as his special servants to serve in the temple, to be intercessors between the people and himself, and that he would bless them through their obedience. But the current priests that we see some 75 years after the temple was restored were failing in this covenant of Levi. They were not zealous anymore for things of the Lord, and they were doing that which was wrong, that which was corrupted. And the Lord is rebuking them to get back on track again. And notice again, verse seven, that definition of what the priest should be doing, seeking the Lord's law from God himself, and then being the messenger to the people for the Lord of hosts of what the law was and what they should be doing, what they should be obeying, what they should not be doing. Go down a little bit farther, and we're looking at a rebuke against Judah and Jerusalem in their entirety. I'm going to look at verses 11, 14, 15, and verse 17. Chapter 2, verse 11. Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange god. Go down to the second part of verse 14. Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. And then verse 17, I'm sorry, verse 15, and then verse 17. And did not he make one? Yet had he the residue of the spirit. 
and wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. Verse 17, ye have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, wherein have we wearied him? When ye say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them, or where is the God of judgment? Keeping God's people pure was something that God spoke to them over and over again. Keep your marriages pure. Be kind to your wife. The wife would be obedient to her husband. The marriage relationship was a picture of God and his people. It's a picture today of God and his church. And the fact that they turned from this sacred relationship and were marrying outside of Israel, women who, who were part of the strange, strange gods, the cults around them, the idolatry, uh, was not something that God was pleased with. Not only were they marrying outside of their, their people, but these women that they were marrying Two, had all these strange practices. I think back of King Solomon, wise and, and great as he was as a king, remember he was David's son, we, he started marrying into the peoples around him. He had many, many strange wives, scripture says, and as he grew older, more and more they turned his heart away from the Lord. He was building temples, altars to these false gods and was not worshiping God truly and fully. And this was what was happening to God's people after the temple was restored. They were doing these marriages that they shouldn't. Their hearts were being turned. They were moving more and more away from the path that God had sent for, set for them as far as their worship was concerned. All right, so that's the first section, dealing with concerns that God has specifically with either his officers or his people. Then he's got a warning that somebody is coming. Chapter three, verses one to six, and the second part of verse seven. Someone want to read that for us? Chapter three. All right. Who did God send before Christ came? John the Baptist. He came in the spirit of Elijah to tell the people of their sin and to baptize them in repentance to their sin. And he came as a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember he said when Christ would come, he would diminish so that Christ would increase. He was only there to present the way of the Lord to come. And the Lord would come both to purify his people and to give them the way of salvation. And just as a, verse three, as a refiner of metal purifies it to make it more acceptable, 
He would come to try to make the ways of the Levites pure. He would try to make things uh, according to God's plan and not man's plan. There would be judgment in his message that if people did not repent, verse 5, that there would be uh, judgment against those who did evil, sorcerers, adulterers, false swearers, those that oppressed the hireling, those that oppressed the widow, those that oppressed the fatherless, those that oppressed the stranger, and those that do not fear him, saith the Lord of hosts. And verse 6 is a reminder to them that God would have been perfectly just in just bringing judgment right off the bat. No waiting time or anything. The people had gone to the point where judgment would have been perfectly right. But God says, he is the Lord, he changes not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. By his mercy, he gives them a second chance. He gives them a third chance. He gives them a fourth chance. What a merciful God we have. And then God asked them in verse 7 to come back to him. He has tried to remind them of what a mighty and a great and a loving God he is, that he hasn't changed, but they've been refusing him. But he says, if you come back to me, I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. And the people come back and say, wherein shall we return? He continues to try to bring his people back to a right understanding of what they need to be doing. And I like the next section that follows here because very often we don't think about tithes in this manner, but God is very particular about his tithes. He gives us everything that we need. He only asks for some 10% back, yet we rebuke at that. So let's look at the next section, verses eight to 12 of chapter three. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. Tithes and offerings belong to God. It's not just something that we can choose to do if you feel like it. Since God gives us everything that we have, everything that we are is from God. He is our master. He is our Lord. And if he asks for a return of obedience to him, and really it's, you know, God doesn't need the money. It's obedience to him that he's seeking. If we refuse to do that, then God says you're, you're robbing him. You're taking away something that belongs to the Lord and keeping it for yourself out of either pride or selfishness or just ignorance. And God says if you do, do what's right, 
verse 10, God would open the windows of heaven, pour you out blessings to the point where you would not have room to receive them all. There would be so many. And verse 11, rather than receiving the curses of God's covenant, you would receive the blessings of God's covenant again. And then not only would you be blessed, verse 12, but you would be a delightsome land to all those around you who see you. If only you come back and do what I, what I tell you, says the Lord. In times of quietness, when not a lot of things might be happening around us, we can get to a point where maybe our worship doesn't seem quite as important. Uh, things are okay, you know, maybe you're not in any great difficulty. Uh, blessings seem to come as a matter of course, you don't even seem to have to ask for them. And you might say, well, why should I even try? I'll just kind of slide along for a while. God says, uh-uh. Chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. Who'd like to read 13 to 15? Is it important to keep following the Lord actively, even when things aren't really happening too much around us? It certainly is. I mean, everything comes from him. You might forget that in times of, of ease, but pastors mentioned this too. We're not promised another breath. We're not promised another heartbeat. We don't know what tomorrow's gonna bring. We have enough trouble dealing with today. We don't know what's gonna happen next year. Uh, blessings can come and go. Uh, things of man can disappear overnight. We've seen it happen in our history. Uh, back in the, the 20s when the stock market shit, uh, crashed, various times in my lifetime where the housing crisis crashed the economy or inflation started going through the roof or it just seems like wickedness was abounding around us. We need to be always close to the Lord. Good times, hard times, easy times. And it's important that we do that because the Lord has messages for us each and every day he has things for us every day. His blessings are new every day. And our worship should be fresh and alive each and every day. Don't get lazy with it. Don't get tired with it. Don't say that, oh, there's so much wickedness around us. Why should we even bother? The Lord's plan is continuing. Things will happen in his timetable. And they may happen at a time when you're not ready for it. If you're off doing your own thing and proceeding under your own steam. The Lord wants his worship to be active, true, and good at all times with him. The book ends with chapter four, talking about the day of the Lord again. This is the great day of the Lord. Uh, we saw it mentioned back in the book of Zephaniah when uh, the Lord through Zephaniah went into great detail about what the great day of the Lord would look like. We see it in the book of Revelation. And 
thankfully, we as believers will be taken out of the world before this happens. But before it happens, we still have the opportunity to warn God's, the people around us of what will happen for those that do not accept him before it is too late. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Someone want to read that for us? Brother Bob? So what, what two large things are going to happen according to verses 1 to 3 when the day of the Lord comes? Got the wicked and the righteous. What's going to happen to the wicked? They're going to burn. Who wants to go into a hot oven? I don't. Not a pleasant place. What about the righteous? Verse 2. They'll be healing. They'll go forward. They'll grow up as calves of the stall. If we go back to Chapter 3, verse 16, it talked about a book of remembrance written before him for those that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. Talking about verse 17, he would make the righteous jewels and spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him in the day of the great day of the Lord. Yes? Well, just as God is light himself, you know, there's no need of the sun in heaven. God is the light himself. He's not only, he's not only a great God with a son, S-O-N, who is great, but he's basically like the sun arising. Well, God is one, so it's probably the Father in, 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 in the strictest sense, but I think the triune God as a whole is all righteous, so you know, it, could be, it could be that as well. And finally, uh, back to the messenger who would come Again, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And again, if we look into the New Testament, we see that that's, reference again of Elijah is a reference to John the Baptist who came first as a prophet to warn and to get the people ready for the, for the coming of our the ministry of the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ and if they don't respond end of verse 6 then the curse would come so then that's the end of the Old Testament there would be several hundred years between this and the book of Matthew, a quiet time where God wanted the positive things that he mentions in the book of Malachi to come to fruition in his people so that they would not continue on the road to, to destruction that they were on, but rather turn to a road that would prepare them for the Lord Jesus Christ when he came. Any uh, thoughts? comments on the book of Malachi.